0: Well, hi, everybody. It's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I am in bar M in Murdoch University, and I'm with a man who has the most difficult name, last name to pronounce in the English language, I'm going to argue. Is it? Well, think about it. The first name is easy. Yes. We'll take that to be the word Chris. Yes. The second name, I'm going to say 50-50 people get wrong. Is that right or is that
1: not right? Do people just get it correct? But, but, there, are three, there are three camps. There's three camps. <laughs> three camps. There's the Smythe, right? which is a, I think, her, okay. uh, the, the sharp, yep. the, is actually... The I gentle thwack different. of cricket ball on shin. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, I think, mm-hmm. difficult, particularly for some European languages. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the Smythe There's the Smythe right. with an E. Oh, and that is pronounced Which, soft, more softly, it is it? It is a... It's a more a long... How would you put it? It's got so, more timbre and to it. In Chris's case, there's no E. That's right, yes, yeah. indeed. Uh, and then there's Smith. Right. And, and many, many people whose name is spelt the same as mine actually do pronounce it Smith. Yeah. So it's a uh, confusion caused by the Smites.
0: Right. <laughs> when you were at school... And you were being reprimanded by the teacher. What did they say? How did they invoke? You? How did they call you up?
1: So, oh, I think on occasion, it gets proper when when you when you're in trouble. Right. You yeah. can sometimes get Mister 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 you know, Mr. Mister I wasn't in a private school. I was public schools all the way through. You know, uh, state schools all the way through. Right. But on occasion it would be uh, it would be that one, um, a three-syllable Christian name. Is for mothers to reprimand. Christopher. Christopher. I bet you the Tony's are uh, Anthony. Yeah. Reginald. Right.
0: Yes. So the three syllables are good ways of really bringing out, resonating your anger, your annoyance at the child. I think so. And if you're an authority figure, then giving you apparent significance and authority, as in Mr., is a way of indicating you're for it. And,
1: I don't know why they do that. Yeah. But it's. They don't just want Chris. It's too yeah. familiar. Chris, yeah, yeah, i like yeah, yeah. to, yeah. you know, drag you in front of the class mm, as an example. Mm, right, right, they don't mm. go with Chris. No, 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 no. You're right. It's too friendly.
0: Mm. It's a friendly word. Or okay, well, so well, the full name, Chris Smythe. Chris Smythe, over here now. Please,
1: now. Yes.
0: So Chris, what are you up to these days? We're here on a beautiful fall morning. It's sunny. It's gorgeous. Why are you at work?
1: What a good question. Um, I love work. I mean, it's—I've it's, been—I've been lucky to have jobs that I've believed in. On occasion, difficult to um, difficult to prepare and to deliver in some cases, um, but nonetheless, I've been—I've been lucky throughout. The reason I'm here at the moment is I'm teaching at Murdoch University in Perth, and a lot of transport going by just at the moment. <laughs> in fact, that's
0: Chris's private plane from his previous job as dean.
1: <laughs> it's a copter, you goose. Right. They're all planes. They fly. And someone's rather expensive bike Very walking expensive. by as
0: well. Yeah.
1: Um, what, um, so at Murdoch, I teach in the journalism department. Um, I've just, in a sense, returned to teaching after being in, a, in an administrative role as the dean of the school, uh, firstly of media communication and uh, media communication and culture, and uh, more recently due to restructuring within the university, the school of arts. And uh, that was uh, that was a managerial role. I've got to say, in the way it was cast, um, and. Rather exhausting really and I've seen a return to teaching as by the time it came around again after six years, uh, rather I was really very much looking forward to it. Hmm. But I am in an area that's, uh, that's moved on, I mean it, the, the changes in journalism and journalism teaching have been quite dramatic. In the last six years In the especially. last six years, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, if you think about, mm-hmm. I mean in, in, a num- in a number of ways. Um, and maybe we can tease those out shortly. But essentially, my work, um, I, do, I do enjoy here. It's very close to work. I'm involved also in uh, the nascent, the, the, well, it's the sort of early days of the Murdoch Community Garden here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's full of all the troubles of a small community group. But essentially, the, the work we do is great fun and, uh, I don't know, it's enriching.
0: Can you, can you tell me about the Murdoch Community Garden? Let's actually yeah.
1: start there and then we'll go to the journalism. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, this campus has, uh, is quite sprawling. It's actually by sheer acreage, the biggest campus in Australia. And it's largely because it's got a veterinary farm in it and large areas of, uh, of land that, were for use, uh, that are for use for, uh, for that purpose. And there's great developments um, afoot because it's now become a, um, a sort of little regional, uh, not regional harbours, it's, it's, it's a suburban um, sanctuary really to some extent. Anyway, there's uh, a few of us thought growing vegetables for students and staff and anybody who's around and interested would be a good idea. Um, you'd think we'd be good at it. Seen as we've got an environmental science department and plenty of students in that in that area, and it's been just uh, a joy to go along on a Wednesday and uh, till the till the dirt and think creatively about where firstly things should go or develop ideas about shaping the uh, the environment. There it's only very small, but. I quite like that. I get I get an urge every seven or eight years to build a wall or something like that, mm, and I mm. think it came at the time when I felt I need to shift some dirt around. What sorts of
0: foods are you planting, Chris?
1: Um, mainly leafy leafy greens, um, tomatoes, capsicums, chilies, herbs, that kind of no. thing. So,
0: still going, well. still. Oh Right, and how do you organise the labour? So it's every Wednesday, a group of volunteers. I've got to say,
1: that's not good. The the organisation. It's got that typical uh, disorganised um, style of community groups. You find people who swan in and promise they a want lot to and do nothing. Mm, they want to vote, but don't. Do any working? Um, they've, got, they've got all sorts of ideas of how to spend money and make the other ones, you know, bring things to fruition. So, uh, in this case, literally. But the uh, good-hearted people, and it falls to the few. And but I enjoy that. I mean, you wouldn't be in it if you weren't responsible to do that. And, uh, but to answer the question, there are there are two models of gardening. Community gardening and I hope eventually to have for, 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 for the group to have both one is the the private plot the you know the, 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 the British uh, um, uh, style where you have allotments you rent a certain amount of space and it 's yours it 's typical private property ownership um, <coughs> model and uh, you you use, you know, it, it's competitive as well in that sense. You know, you often hear the story of people outdoing each other with their marrows. Um, but it's but I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it? I wonder. No, I don't think it is,
0: but it's funny when it's you see that, that way kind of just, since yes. they become
1: inedible. Yes. For a certain size, right? <laughs> Very good. Um, and, then there's, uh, and then there's the more communal method, mm. which I saw while I was staying um, for uh, for some time in the south of France, and outside our window, each morning people would turn up, and they knew what they were doing, but they weren't the same people each time, necessarily. I think, and they were tilling the land, letting water slush through, mm. and uh, I presume were reaping for all, and mm. or or, it, or people could could take to their uh, uh, for their needs. Wow. There's no security in some of these places either. So there's an assumption that if you're poor enough to want some tomatoes, well, you can just have them. Mm.
0: So there's also a trust, but a trust not necessarily that things will be as you left them, but rather that they will be taken by those who need them.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, I mean, you've got to be careful about sabotage, you know, Mm. like coming and spraying stuff that you didn't want on there or that you've made a decision that we're going to be organic or we're not going to use certain things. Mm, mm. But I guess that's one of the risks of having a, ha, ha, having a beautiful thing that everyone can see and mm, use. Mm.
0: What do you do about the problem of water in Perth? I mean, for those oh. who don't know, Perth is a place that actually has quite a lot of rainfall at different times of the year, but has very long periods of almost no rain, vast amounts of sun. and heat. Yes.
1: And well, we've just gone given that it's the first week of April we only had some rain just a couple of days ago which was the first since the end of October last year and it's yeah so it was over 100 days was a long time Mm -hmm. anyway um Look, it is a problem. Usually, artesian water is how they—that's what we've got in uh, in our area here. Mm. Um, Of course, people use rainwater tanks because they like the the purity of rainwater. Mm. Um, But that's how you manage it, and you do it. And the irrigation system is not open; it's it's by way of pipes, and Mm -hmm. then um, seeps out through uh, thinner thinner pipes to the uh, to the plants, Um, and largely. Is delivered at the root, to, delivered to the to the plants at that level, rather mm. than being sprayed around the place, or mm. for that matter, being run across the surface, mm. Mm. as in some other places mm. that uh, your listeners will uh, will be familiar with. Absolutely. So it's more targeted um, to particular plant growth, particular plant life. rather yes. than Scattered and down the growth. Things grow quickly, so in a sense, um, you want to make sure that you turn the the uh, the, the, the vegetables over um, by, uh, by way of um, timing and phasing so that you really do maximise their best qualities.
0: One of the amazing things about Murdoch is that it is largely native flora here.
1: Uh, or at least large amounts of the flora. Look, it, it's, it's, it's an illusion to some extent. Is it? Yes, because the whole area was covered by uh, pine plantation.
0: Oh, so which, until the mid '70s, pine
1: is exotic. Uh, yes, Australia. it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was. It was all pl- it was planted as an industrial uh, forest um, and then harvested totally, except you can see some remnant ones around the place still, uh, which the the um, endangered uh, black cockatoo. Has taken a fancy to pine cones in the last 40 years. So it's important to sustain that. Yes, phase. it is. In fact, those those areas uh, are now, one can't touch them under an you know, order. They're Isn't exotic. it interesting? That's wonderful.
0: That's <laughs> <quite> wonderful. <laughs> Fucking evolution, dude. It's, it's no like, good.
1: It's like you <laughs> can't, <laughs> can't touch the curry now <laughs> in Northbridge. <laughs> so the, these.
0: Native plants are recent additions to the area.
1: Yes, relatively so. Yeah, they're they're forty years old, and they do. I mean, they've been done in such a sympathetic way. They are clearly local to the to this very area. They're doing fantastically, and of course that means the soils and the um, uh, and the weather suit them.
0: Yeah. Mm. So that was brilliantly done when they designed Murdoch. They basically created a new foliage that was, in fact native to the area and ideally suited.
1: Yes, I mean, many of the, the ideals um, by which the university was established are reflected in such things. Mm. And I think the, guard, the, the, the planted environment is the best mm. example of that. And then there's the kind of spare buildings, um, rather utilitarian, really. They did make a mistake at one point, and this is, his, this is a matter of importance in Perth, and that is they they put asbestos sheeting on the roofs, uh, um, and they, they had to remove those a few years ago. But uh, and of course, asbestos was a very sad episode uh, in industrial and um, well, uh, and personal life for uh, mm. for many West Australians. Absolutely, so, yeah. yeah. Terrible diseases, terrible deaths. Yes, yeah, we'd, we're doing some research on that actually in, in our in our area. It's a National Health and Medical Research Centre um, council uh, funded program, but we're telling stories of asbestos, and that's quite an interesting. Um, well, last five years or so that we've been working in the research area on really what is asbestos central. It's this state of Western Australia uh, in the world has got the very high levels of. Asbestos-related disease and that so? and research accordingly, and all the other things that go with uh, dreadful in, you know, industrial disease. So many of the legal first legal cases that pushed the the boundaries of uh, workers' rights were here and uh, and compensation, and also um, uh, the chest the chest clinics and the mm. means of. Uh, of treatment advanced here.
0: And can you, before we get onto the journalism
1: stuff, could you tell mm. us a bit about that project? I'm sure it relates to journalism and your yes, role. Yes, it does. In yeah, it sounds look, very interesting. Yeah, look, it was a combination. It's an interesting one. It takes an outsider to understand asbestos because we we're so used to it as a cultural phenomenon. Mm. It built many. It built houses. Virtually any house built post-war in Perth up until 1983 would have had some asbestos in it. And uh, some to- totally, all the walls and roofing were made of asbestos. So um, it's uh, ubiquitous in the suburbs of the of of, of the state. And um, we came in a sense. I've lived here uh, since I was a boy, so it, it, I knew the dangers of asbestos. But one of my colleagues who was from Sweden came in the 1980s and uh, was working here. Um, uh, in in the last 10 years, and um, she was horrified, firstly, by the fact that there were asbestos houses and people renovating in her street, and she she, she read up on the dangers of it. I was surprised she didn't know. We all assume, as it it were, that people, people know about asbestos. And then, secondly, um, we were doing interviews at the Midland Railway workshops, a very big, massive industrial area that was closed in the 1990s. And I, I wrote a book about, uh, a picture book, um, with a, with a colleague on the workshops. But this uh, Swedish colleague of mine did some interviews with people who, uh, soon after the interviews, started getting sick and then died. And she said, "This is terrible. Do you know how how big a problem this is?" Mm. And, of course, I grew up and read all the worrying reports of uh, the incidence of disease uh, in the 1970s and the law court cases. And mesothelioma other and so yeah, on. Yeah, mesothelioma. I mean, still untreatable, you know, you, you can't incurable. At least they can ease some of the symptoms, but it's a death sentence to be told you've got mesothelioma. And um, I then realised that actually you need to... Re, reacquaint people with the, with, the, with the problems and of course they were then entering into what they call the third wave of disease sufferers the first ones being the miners and transporters of asbestos straight from the mines of the northwest of Australia um, the second lot who were the workers who worked the materials in, in the uh, uh, on the building sites and then the third wave which is, in a sense, all of us, whoever got a drill out or a sander or a, a nail and a hammer and started messing around with the back fence or the, the sheeting on the, uh, on the extension. So, and of course, the dreadful, um, insidious aspect of the disease is that you could have been watching your uncle doing some sawing when you were five, and by the time you turned 45... You start getting a bit short of breath and a pain in the chest, and you contracted the disease 40 years ago, and you'll be dead in six months. It's just uh, a dreadful um, mm. contemplation, really. Mm. And Chris, could you tell us a bit about the book that you did
0: that you just mentioned? Oh yeah, look, that was, this spurred this on.
1: Yeah, look, that, was, uh, that was about the Midland Railway workshops. Railway workshops are those massive industrial complexes from the 19th century. They were built big for big machines, for the big um, uh, industrial needs of the railways. Mm. So um, this was the place in Perth, um, in in Midland, in the east east suburbs, where um, the trains would be made and, um, and... maintenance would take take place, and they it lasted for ninety years and it was closed in thousand nine hundred and ninety four It was closed because it was old school, shall we say it, it, it had it served its purpose for a for a purpose, but it also was a, a harbourer and generator of um, uh, left wing thought and um, union uh, activity, uh, it was still in the public sector, so these were blue-collar workers in the public sector, and at that stage, the kind of liberals were, were uh, privatising um, all the public assets and uh, public services, and the print works was one, and certainly the railways were the others that were mm. high on the target mm. of our mm. Conservative Party, the Liberal Party here in the 1990s and it went. Their promise was uh, fulfilled and um, a lot of workers, at one stage they had hundreds of apprentices each year, so it was one of the biggest uh, producers of um, skilled labour in the state. And almost anybody, I've, I've worked on projects now where there's a connection with almost anybody. So I, I was surprised at the number of people said, oh, yeah, my uncle worked at the workshops, or, yeah, my grandfather was uh, an apprentice there. So it did, uh, it certainly, it, it resonated. So the book was this beautiful um, set of photographs that were taken by a colleague of mine at the, uh, the, the Daily Newspaper, uh, the West Australian, um, in black and white, in uh, the closure of the uh, workshops. A very sad affair. Um, and then we, in a sense, filled out the book around this photo essay of his with some archival archival photographs, and they're just they're just delightful. So uh, I then, in a typical kind of tabloid way, um, wrote uh, wrote the uh, in a sense wrote the words around hmm. both the conversations I'd had with with these old fellas uh, and, and the photographs themselves and some of the historical um, uh, story of the workshops. And Is any of this available online at all
0: nowadays? So, look, so,
1: it, my Swedish colleague uh, did, uh, did a, a, a CD and a w- website with that on, on, online, it's Midland Railway Workshops if people want to. Midland
0: Railway Workshops. And could you tell us the name of your book? That's it's actually, it's called Middle Railway that. Workshops. And it's by you and the photographer?
1: Nick Ellis, Nick an Ellis. award-winning uh, photographer, no. terrific fellow. Yes. And the Swedish colleague? Mia Lindgren. Mia Lindgren. And Mia is now um, the head of school uh, of um, journalism and media at Monash University. Oh, in, in Victoria. And then what happened was mm. that uh, we then got interested in the asbestos issue and realised that, yes, it is a story, and... It needs to be told, in a sense, again to mm. Australians. Mm. And we were the ones who felt responsible to do it. At the West Australian? No, it, it, here at, at, at Murdoch. At Murdoch, because um, we also had uh, a historian here, and she's now adjunct to the uh, university, having retired, Lenore Lehman, and she was the foremost authority on... Um, the working environment of asbestos workers in the north, the miners and the workers. So between journalists and uh, a historian, we latched on to um, interesting work that has been done um, by the so-called Wittenoom Group, which was a a, a group of uh, medical uh, professionals who were... Um, keeping an eye on the cohort of anybody who'd lived and worked in Whittanoon, mm-hmm. which were some thousands, and uh, regularly checking on their health mm-hmm. and providing what was called a, the vitamin A program at the time. It's now proven that vitamin A didn't really make a difference. Um, but people you know, were, were prepared to try anything to make sure that they could ward off this dreadful disease. So on the back of a combination of... Um, medical uh, professionals um, historians and journalists we created a, a rather interesting website uh, called australian asbestos network australian been, asbestos, asbestos network yes it 's now um, one of the mo- most in a sense popular of uh, of the the websites. What we wanted to do was make sure that it wasn 't partisan and the um so hardy 's pays for it doesn't it? <laughs> look it was a dreadful that's one a... of the
0: that... they're the kind of bad guys in the manufacture distribution sales, and killing of asbestos
1: yes indeed and they're, they're uh, i don't know the sorts of things that they got up to were uh appalling over the over the over the, a long time they're a big big construction firm or big um, manufacturing and supply firm in the u in the u s now um but yeah they were one of the the bigger of the producers in the world, really, of asbestos products. So um, what we did was we, we, we had a website that told stories. And um, we, wanted to, we, didn't ta- we didn't take money from elsewhere. Um, it, it, the other websites that we looked around at, at the time, and this is about 06, were largely, some very good ones, I've got to say, largely funded by law firms that were looking to take up plaintiff cases. And um, government sites that warned of the occupational health and safety issues, and some um, asbestos product sites uh, in some countries and asbestos is still being sold around the place it 's being exported from Canada and all over the place, so it's, uh, the disease is, uh, the diseases associated with asbestos will, will be around for a very long time. Um, so what we want to do is try and Talk about the stories, and in a sense, and that involved a lot of interviews with people who were on the on their deathbeds, literally. And it was it was harrowing for some of the interviewees uh, to 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 do the reports. But the, it was the, the the stories are telling, and they're not, of course, just about death. They're about the beautiful time they had at Wittonoom, and as workers and and everything as well. So it's a it's, and I think for that reason, it's become um, the, a go-to kind of, um, how would you put it, a conduit almost mm, uh, yeah. for, for those interested in uh, asbestos. And then what we've done is we've linked then off to the authoritative uh, sites for medical information, legal information, that kind of thing.
0: That's wonderful. And who's involved in it? Lenore Lehman, you
1: mentioned. Oh, Lenore. Gail Phillips, who's uh, uh, an adjunct associate professor here at Murdoch University. Uh, Myself, Mia Lindgren, uh, and René Desai, who works here and has been very much involved in modernising the thing so that it uh, has used Twitter and Facebook to... These young people's tools. I've read about them. Yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) And it's an interesting phenomenon because Mm. I think it's the... I think it's the granddaughters of the sufferers who have been logging in, I think, and providing advice to, their, uh, to the granddad um, who's the sufferer, who may either not be, you know, um, savvy, on the web. savvy on the web or well speak
0: English. Or speak English. A lot of migrant workers from from Eastern Europe, presumably. uh, Mostly from Southern Europe. Southern Europe, so Italians, Greeks,
1: yeah, and the sort of Yugoslavs as well. In in that wave of uh, post war migration to
0: Australia to get to to create an industrial proletariat.
1: Yeah, look, it's a very it's a very interesting um, Mm -hmm. phenomenon, and we've noticed that that the the disease did not get the attention in the society in the community that it deserved in a way mm. and we've teased that I've you could see it you could see the reasoning mm. when he got mm. told you had the disease mm. you didn't have long to advocate for, about it mm-hmm. you know people mm-hmm. just wanted to spend their last six months with their family in as little pain as possible knowing the end was coming they were what blue-collar workers okay. often from you know were from English was not their second language uh, sorry it was their second language wasn't their first language and yeah. Um, So, in comparison to say the HIV uh, disease in in the 1980s, these people didn't have the same kind of political clout that uh, urban, uh, well-educated, you know, um, white uh, sufferers Mm. uh, had Mm. um, in comparison. uh, And weren't used
0: to organising in social movements.
1: Exactly Probably. right. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. So mm. that was the um, that was the fate, uh, and I think to some extent, the reasoning why there hasn't been more uh, money into medical research and that kind of thing is uh, is a function of their lack of organisation.
0: And you received some funding, you said, I think, from a National Health and Medical Research Council here in Australia. Does that fund the website's existence?
1: It did initially, yes. Um, and, you know, Murdoch's contribution now is to keep it maintained and that kind of thing. But, yes, we've got the, the, the money is uh, being used for that. And that's one of, the, one of the great outcomes is the number of people who, who, who use it uh, contribute to it, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's. Been, oh, so it's an
0: open portal. What well, they can
1: send. It's not quite open in the sense mm. that it's moderated because we're okay. very careful. In fact, the medical professionals are really um, uh, strict about this because everybody's got, uh, you know, a, a, a suggestion on uh, how mm. to uh, how to deal with a deal with a disease. So we were very careful about how we how we. Go about yeah, describing you don't, you things don't want and recommending nutty
0: ideas that are not scientific. No, that you, claim cures that can not really. Yeah, in fact, yeah. there's.
1: Um, uh, you you can get um, international web recognition mm-hmm. for uh, authoritative health websites, which are checked. Yeah, There's called called on code the on code H O N code, I think it's called, mm. and uh, uh, you go through a kind of registration process mm. so that it's mm. it's it's, mm. it's thus coded and then. Uh, recognised internationally and that means that medical professionals will uh, will pay attention to it or right. at least, um, yeah, you know, not question it.
0: Now, Chris, before we get on to this I, was, I think it's going to end up being our last topic namely yes. journalism education today I'd like to go back, back, back as they say in baseball to this expression we've used a couple of times the West Australian <laughs> which is the most significant daily newspaper in Western Australia and is in a set. You know, every Australian capital city has its daily newspaper, and there are a couple of national ones: the Australian and the Financial Review. Although the Australian Financial Review is not
1: daily, I think. Yeah, it's it is still daily. Yeah. But yeah. well, isn't
0: it? Well, it used to be five days a
1: week. Yes, that's right. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's five days a week. It's five, yes, correct. Maybe it has yeah. a weekend. And there's a weekend. Uh, but like the FT, yeah. Times. That's but exactly the right.
0: West Australian is what six days a week, and then yeah, it, just it Sunday days. times. Yeah. Mm. So it follows the British model. Mm. Of there being a separation between the six-day-a-week paper yeah. and the weekend. But um, you worked there. When did you start there? When did you finish and what I, you I, do? Start,
1: I started on the afternoon paper. that It's sister paper, the Daily News. Oh, the Daily News. Yeah, That's so it's right. owned by the same yeah.
0: company, West And Australian is the Daily newspapers.
1: News still going? No, it, it uh, closed on 11.990. I remember that clearly because I was the union secretary at the time oh, and I had to deal with all the redundancies. Oh, my God, okay. Uh, so so you it started September on... 11, 1990.
0: Wow. You started on the daily news. Yes, I did. So tell us about that and tell us about working for an
1: afternoon paper. Oh, look, it was, it was in its heyday, I guess, or close, close to the, uh, the, the, the waning of, the, of afternoon papers. And in those days, of course, it was the threat of uh, evening television uh, and the, the diminution at that stage of public transport um, because the afternoon paper was for people to read on their way home. Uh, from work at it's a time. It's how the equal standard
0: is making so much money in London now. Yeah,
1: of course. I mean, all the metros, yeah. that are freebies, yep. are uh, given out at uh, train station. Gangbusters profits. I mean, this is the ebb and flow of uh, mm. people's uh, daily uh, activities. Mm. So with the change in um, finishing times of individuals, so people just didn't clock off at the same time all around the the, the, the city, Um, with the fact that people preferred their cars, etc., at that point as well, and also that the evening news was going to be on television. Um, They were the threats to to the Mm. afternoon paper. I started as a cadet, so that means you get thrown into all the... uh... In fact, I actually started as a a, uh, copy runner. So as a copy boy, I would have been the last of that generation. And um, I'd already been a graduate uh, of arts and psychology at the university here, uh, the University of Western Australia. And the, 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 it was a typical tabloid afternoon newspaper to some extent. It had four editions during the day, which, if you ever think about that, it's <laughs> that's quite In an industrial... Japanese
0: papers still,
1: some of them have seven.
0: Oh, no, it's extraordinary, Day. but it four was. in a town which, in those days, would have had well under a million people.
1: Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. extraordinary. <laughs> it's yeah. Silly, isn't it? Um, so yeah, that the yeah. So, so the, the stories were picture stories largely. Um, it was yeah, there, there were police rounds featured heavily. Um, some entertainment, although it was only the young ones who were pushing for more entertainment pages. Sport was important, of course, in this town and in this state and in Australia generally. Sport prevails. And of course,
0: an afternoon paper in a good position to give you the latest score or the result.
1: Yeah, and look, it was in those days. Yeah, yes, that's right. I mean, um, it it depends a little bit. I mean, we would get uh, you know some of the some of the scores from overnight that the that the morning paper didn't have. Mm. So uh, mm. it, there would be all that kind of thing from around the world as well. So it, the international pages were short, small, um, and then and it was it was. A, It was about the talk of the day, really. Just as Twitter and Facebook are nowadays. And
0: you said you were a union official there, so you presumably got involved in the union out of some sort of political commitment?
1: Look, I think we all joined. Newspapers were, and still are, pretty well organised. And and, and the union is... The union also had a, a... a role in the professional lives, as it were, so this kind of joint professional industrial um, sides of the brain were well connected in a way and um, so i mean there were for that reason, a lot of people joined, but also for that reason, the political spread of people 's ideas within the union were broad there were right wingers in the in the union mm. um, who were who joined because of their in a sense, professional duty. Also, they wanted a say. And uh, so it was, an interesting, it was interesting when we came to ballots and things like that because the political spread was quite, uh, quite broad. But, um, yeah, I, I took an interest because I wanted to see things improve, uh, not just for, you know, working life, but also the quality of the stuff we produced. I felt for some reason that we could fix it from beneath if the editors weren't, you know, sort of willing to do so. So when it shut down, you
0: all started looking at the West Australian or Channel 7 or the ABC, I guess?
1: Look, they'd already been picked up. I think people who were had a hope, as it were, mm. had been poached or made their inquiries beforehand. Mm-hmm. There was no mm. doubt about that. happens now, of course, except there's fewer and fewer outlets to, mm. to go yeah. and uh, make a... A call to mm. so yeah, um, I think in the end pe- some people went freelance, uh, thought, thinking that they could make a go of it on their own, of course, there wasn 't the net you couldn 't just easily uh, develop a website and hope that you'd get some traffic to that, mm. so and even then, I mean you could make a the sort of living out of out of such an enterprise as you would working as a as a, a middling journalist for an afternoon paper. I mean, the wages were pretty pretty good. So it was, it was very difficult. I mean, it was the end for m- many of them as, a, as as journalists. And then, of course, there's the public relations industry. So there were a lot of people who left and went to other other writing jobs, as it were, um, for a different master. <laughs> and nowadays, of course, journalism is public relations. But anyway, that's another topic. <laughs> so what did you do? I, look, I was a production journalist. I wasn't a great writer. Uh, I was a pithy headline writer. I worked in the That's UK pithy, for pithy pithy, years. <laughs> <laughs> I was half pithed all the time. <laughs> um, uh, I've got alcohol was a problem. I've got to say. I, I mean, you quip about that, but alcohol was a serious problem in journalism in the 1980s and 90s. I think it changed somewhat um, uh, after that period. But uh, it was a it was a cultural phenomenon within the industry. Oh, it was the
0: same when I worked in radio in the 70s. Uh, horrifying, actually. Oh, terrible. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah, it was uh, uh, yeah. So that my role was um, production. I was a sub editor, production journalist, mm. and um, you know got the paper out. That's, that was, our, and that was our job. and went into the West Australian. It w- I didn't no. I didn't work for the West in the end. I, I oh, left. You didn't? I left. Went worked in the UK for a summer. Then I came back and was the secretary of the union as a full time job.
0: Oh really? Yeah. I don't know why I thought you were at the West Australian. I yeah. do apologise. No, that's all right. Interesting. So this is the Australian. I'm very familiar with it, of course, because
1: uh, both working in the same building, and then representing those employees as the uh, the union rep. What was the name of the union? Uh, The Australian Journalists Association, Mm -hmm. and then it it became the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance when it amalgamated with theatrical workers, actors, and uh, technicians. So uh, in that period of the 1990s uh, in Australia, where uh, in industry unions were being mm-hmm. developed by way of mergers of craft unions.
0: Right, right, right. So, so how long did you work for them?
1: I worked for the union for 10 years, yeah, and saw that change in. So the 21st and,
0: century hits and the web has this beginning yeah. to happen. Newspapers don't know what to do, but they basically put their material out for free on... Not very well designed web pages.
1: Is that what happens in perfect description? Activity? Yeah, it is. And yeah. late, so slow. Right. Um, they didn't think it was going to catch on. You know, the internet. That's that's a fact. That's fad. for geeky
0: people with money and too much time on their hands. Is yeah. that the attitude?
1: Yeah, there'll always be a place for the solid read that you get. You mm-hmm. know, uh, either at the right. newsagent or thrown over your fence. And
0: this is the this is the period when, for example, in Britain, the Guardian is investing in the most expensive, most up-to-date print technology imaginable. That's extraordinary, what did wasn't that. it? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Which is one of the reasons why they feel they can't simply stop printing, actually, apart from their romantic attachment. They invested so much money.
1: Yeah. And you write about the romantic attachment, and I think there are readers who still like the feel, the physical feel. Likewise, the producers. I think there are fewer now managers at the top who have that attitude. Um, yeah. But what's changed, I think, is that uh, there was a corporate changes as well, so people bought, uh, organisations bought into newspapers. And at the time, of course, we we workers felt that that was the right way of going. Instead of having moguls, tycoons mm. yeah. saying what should be in their paper, yeah. we wanted to see banks and investment yeah. companies owning yeah. newspapers. A little realizing that this a little realizing that all they or... mm, all they wanted was the money. And as yeah. soon as the, uh, the the books didn't look right, they had no faith in in the enterprise of journalism. Yeah. And the moguls still did. You got to give that to Rupert, in a sense, that you know he still pumps the money into the, the business of journalism. Yeah. yeah, sure. So we get to 2000. and What do you do then? What happens to you? Well, I had to be laundered somewhat from yeah. the uh, from uh, being the union secretary. I couldn't go straight back into newsrooms because no editor would have me. <laughs> They've been calling you that bastard for 10 years. Right. There's always trouble when smoke comes through the newsroom. So what I did was um, I got a job here at Murdoch University on the tools, as it were, working for the management, producing their newspaper, uh, producing their internal publications and their external alumni publications. Mm. Hello. So that was, uh, that's nice? what we were doing. Well,
0: is there anywhere I can get some more hot water? Is that feasible or is that sort of not legit? I'll Can see, you not?
1: I'll see. You'll see. You're I'll so see. sweet. will see. I'm right, If thanks. we
0: gave you both of those for you and no. your friends, that wouldn't be any kind of no. <laughs> that's, you, just, that's just pathetic. And shut up and don't even consider it. Never speak this way again. You'll Get a million of them in. <laughs> oh, I see. You, you, you exist on these things. Really? They say they're Victoria coffee, but they're, they're probably chocolate. some kind of they're candy. Chocolate. Oh, chocolate. Yeah. Okay. So you came and helped produce not the student newspaper but the institutional
1: university yeah, newspaper yeah I was, at Murdoch. yeah in 2000 actually. yeah in nine, yeah 98 i did so that, you yeah.
0: became you were the editor
1: or yes that's right yeah, yeah, oh,
0: yeah.
1: interesting. okay yeah um, I'd done a little bit of work around the place for the unions as well i was uh, I'd, I'd made myself a freelance you know mm-hmm. operative oh. and took on work with uh, with some of the unions and uh, that was good you know producing stuff but as a journalist producing oh, things um, and then i uh, became i I was well-known throughout the town, I guess, you'd have to say. And the people who were on, in the journalism department here teaching journalism uh, realised I was on campus and said, do you want to do you know, a casual shift of uh, uh, a, a tutorial, a casual tutorial? So I, I took that up and I enjoyed it and oh, I was nice. good at it. And then someone left all of a sudden and I was dead, dead lucky. And who? You've got to understand, Toby, I'm one of the lucky people. I, I consider myself lucky.
0: Mm-hmm. Say why? I don't
1: know. And I, I, and I, I don't risk it. I don't, I don't threaten it, as it were, by saying so. It's, I, I guess I, I get, I get on with people, and I see prospects in things all the time. So think I think positively. that's what it is. Yeah. Now, when I was at Murdoch in
0: ninety two, ninety three, when oh, she's come back with some hot water. That's so nice of you, despite my failed bribe. Things, didn't it? <laughs> it did, that's it. Thank, Thank you very you. much. And journalism was started and was thought of as being for the West Australian. It was meant to be the conduit to the West Australian and it was to be newspaper oriented, yes, as yes, I recall. Yes. And there were a couple of guys from the paper who were yes, appointed. Yep,
1: yep.
0: What form has it taken since?
1: Look, it had to In recent times, it it, it carried on that way for a while. It was postgraduate, um, but uh, because of funding arrangements in Australia, um, the government uh, ceased funding postgraduate study. It stopped people being perpetual students. So uh, it was uh, was one of those that suffered from the uh, sense of privatising of postgraduate study. So um, we started an undergraduate course, and at that point... There were lots of... Un- I mean, journalism popular around in three universities at that stage then. So we... Uh, we here had in to Perth. Here in Perth. And what we needed to do was find a niche for, for our, for our uh, course. And we decided to go online very early. So we produced the first online daily uh, news service 14 years ago. Oh, it was a very long, long, long time ago. None of the others have... have did it and and still not daily in the other universities so it gives a it was fantastic because it was cheap obviously because you can you know, upload material that day um, quickly for uh, students who have been out covering stories so it was a great experience for them. Um, we've also changed in recent years last four or five years to make sure that all graduates now can use video and audio. Um, I've got to say that the the demise, as it were, of the specialist cameraman or camera operator, uh, photographer, etc., is telling. And the, and the news, uh, web, web news sites have not cared enough about photographs, in my view. They'll put anything up. Yep. And, um, you know, that, that I think that's a, a sad affair, but it's one of the realities that you've got to be able to manage all forms of information, capture it and edit it. For, for, for the web. So we've, we've tried to instill that early on so that people have the best advantage of work that they might want to do themselves, a bit of an entrepreneurial flair if they want to be freelancers and also if uh, that they, look as, they look good prospects to their first editor. Mm. So, yeah, mm. that's how wow. that's This how multitasking
0: it. is extraordinary um, and not only that, of course, but having to produce material for different sites that are owned by the same company... I think about people who work for NBC in the US. They have to do not only the camera operating, the sound recording, the editing a lot of the time, but they have to write copy. Some of them have not been trained as print journalists for NBC, MSNBC, CNBC, CNBC yeah. Asia, CNBC Africa, and yeah. on and on and on it goes. The same if you work at the BBC. I presume ABC is the same. Mm-hmm. These. BCs are now requiring you not to be a broadcast journalist. It's not just that the print right. journalists have to do picture, it's that yeah. broadcast journalists have to yeah. do print or write.
1: I think the sadder ones though are the uh, the the police rounds person or the uh, or the finance reporter of a of a mm. newspaper mm. having to do a comment piece to the video mm. a few years ago. Right. Well, wow, they were they were hilarious on right. occasion, some of those, because they were even I Me. Mean, at least at least those who'd written scripts for broadcasts could write sentences. But these are guys straight from the junk tank. <laughs> <laughs> Who've been seeing blood on the ground? Are we for on yet, Toby? Are yeah. we on? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fantastic. So you mentioned that things have gotten tougher in the last five years, and certainly in the global north that's true. I mean worldwide journalism is expanding massively yeah. because of the increase in the number of alphabetic or literate people. And so there are more jobs for journalists than ever before, and there will be more and more and more and more and more, but if you tell people this in the United States or Britain or I guess Australia, they look at you haphazardly, but that's the case. They're just not the same jobs as the ones that were anticipated. In the local environment, what does that mean for how you teach people?
1: Uh, Well, we've done this because it's always been difficult to get a a job um, statistically, uh, so, you know, in Western Australia, in Perth, we would have produced between the three universities something like 150 graduates for the 25 jobs that existed in the heyday. Now there's probably 20-odd new jobs that are in the mainstream media and probably a similar number in the smaller um, web uh, environment. So you're right, there are more jobs, they're different, they're... They're part-time in many cases. They're mixed with other things like fundraising and marketing. Um, and, of course, different institutions now have news websites as their landing page, and they may be in, a, you know, in another business altogether. Um, so that's the, um, that's the environment we're preparing people for. But we've always, in a sense, taught for the 10% who are going to get work or... You know, w- walk into a job, um, and the others just had to learn it along the way. Now it's been it's for that reason it's not a bad thing to pick up at a university because you have to research, think quickly on your feet, um, be conversational, at least earn the trust of people, be able to write, think clearly, write uh, succinctly. These are attributes that are not bad in life, uh, oh, and for for many other jobs. And we've not seen the. Decline of numbers of students who want to do journalism, which is fascinated me. Well,
0: it's a calling.
1: It is. I mean, it's interesting. In One view. of my colleagues who, you know, was uh, trying to be Pollyanna, I think, about, about journalism. Um, and he said, Look, Chris, you, you know, in a democracy, very, you know, very serious, in a democracy, there's always going to be a place for, you know, for good journalism and of course I was at the, my wits end at uh, another another closure or another round of Endless redundancies, redundancies. <laughs> and I said I said uh, look mate there's always going to be a place for poets in the United States in a democracy speech is free
0: if you can afford it
1: <laughs> so yeah it was uh, it was one of those moments where I realized that um, it wasn't going to be the same kind of industrial model of uh, working as uh, a journalist, but journalism was going to thrive, was going to survive. There's no doubt about it. Mm. And it's going to be for more people. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, we've got about 10 minutes left. The other thing I'd love to hear from you about is research and theory because historically media production areas, which in Australia really begin with journalism at UQ, University of Queensland, in the 20s. Mm. It's almost a century old journalism. Uh, study in, in Australia. But these areas, which have gone on to include other media forms, have claimed to be anathematic to and not needful of research or theory, whereas for someone like me, as far as I'm concerned, from when I was reading the radio news in the 1970s, there was lots of research that went into the news, except when people were dead drunk in the newsroom and I had to write it, and lots of theory. It just wasn't explicit necessarily, and it was often more sophisticated and more interesting than the research and theory that went on in places called universities. So that's my pitch, but tell me what it means for you as a practitioner, as a unionist, to, but also somebody who had gone to university, which many journalists hadn't of our generation mm. before,
1: and has then gone on to do further research. Where does it sit for you? Look, many journalism academics say they do research all the time. The journalists say the same. Um, in the, the collecting of information, the sifting through of who's bullshitting and who's mm. got a, a, a good re- reason and where the crucial information lies. Mm. I think journalists are actually quite good at that and play it down somewhat. But that's the extent of their research. And I think um, it, it gets ingrained and limits the research that that, 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 that describes um, is, I think, l- is limiting. And to come then to a university and say that, you know, that is research is too narrow. I think one of the things it doesn't do is it doesn't provide the the proper trail of mm. evidence. Mm-hmm. Journalists just assume that everyone can trust them, that I've managed to get the to the right person. And don't properly explain how they dismissed other sources, um, gave different, different weighting to uh, evidence from different places, and really need to, in a sense, undo some of the assumptions that they have to uh, then have a more transparent line of, um, uh, of documentation. Um, Philip Meyer uh, in the US came up with the notion of precision journalism. Um, a couple of decades ago now, it must be, and he took the scientific approach to, to journalism in the, um, un, uh, the discovery, shall we say, process, mm-hmm. um, so that other people, just like you can with science or in, in other ethical research, in a sense do the same experiment or come to the same conclusion by looking at the evidence that is presented along with their final story. Now, that's not... That was groundbreaking in, in journalism circles. I mean, he's, he's giving away all of his contacts, as it were. So that's the... Uh, it's giving uh, away your computation. Indeed. And that was... That, that is, uh, I think, the the unpacking of journalism that, that was required, that's required in, in research. Um, getting ethics approval for journalistic uh, endeavour within a university is pretty difficult um, because, in a sense, you have to... Um, uh, this has been difficult in newsrooms, these sort of internal newsrooms that, uh, ju- that um, journalism schools have sometimes come unstuck with their ethics offices around the, around the world um, because we, those assumptions are built into um, the, the, the investigation and the interview. So instead of explicitly saying this is the reason for my research um, and getting written approval and also the, uh, the option or the right to withdraw as a uh, participant um, is all bound up in a very short conversation, sometimes over the phone, between a reporter and a source. So you say, look, I'm writing a story for blah, 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 you know, for, the, for the website. Implicit in all that is, and I'm going to use all the information you use um, uh, to be available for my editing, and you're not going to see what the product is before it's uh, produced, and you will be quoted in the way I say so, because it's my story. Um, Now, that is an assumption that journalists have in that one little intercourse over the phone with uh, with the source. Uh, and that, that would not satisfy an ethics committee of a university, that there's been um, you know, willful approval by the, uh, by the source. So the practice um, is, needs, needs to be broadened in the, uh, in the inquiry for, for university purposes.
0: That's one reason why I pay for these podcasts, I don't put them on my CV, and I correspond with people using a private email address. I'm fucked if I'm going to have those bastards tell me that I need to get you to sign this and that and the other in terms of informed consent. Sorry, not on. It's called academic freedom. Mm-hmm. Whilst I appreciate that the informed consent logic derives from the Nuremberg trials, Tuskegee experiments and so forth, this is not human subject experimentation. That's right. Yeah. It really isn't. And there are very important exceptions to institutional review boards, as they're called in the United States, for oral historians. They have a blanket exemption. Because unlike, say, people doing those horrendous things in Tuskegee or in mm. the Third Reich, these are not experiments with a view to replication or proof of generalization. They are, in fact, stories told by people of the moment. Yes. So, whereas anthropologists and sociologists don't get exemptions in the U.S. from this kind of scrutiny, or what historians do, and rightly so, so, I'm actually, I don't like this stuff. I, because I want, part of my project in research is to discover things that, guess what, I didn't know. So, that's why I can't tell you what my line of questioning will be when we sit down to talk. Yes. Actually, because yes. you'll help to make the line of questioning. It's a collaboration. Yes. yes. That's one of my big anxieties with this apparatus. Even as I take the point that's implicit in what you say, which is journalists. And the rest of us cannot simply be the bosses of everything we do with total control. We need to share that with the
1: people we're talking
0: to. But I feel very ambivalent about this stuff. Sorry for the
1: no the stump uh, speech. No, and it's it's precisely this uh, this engagement that we've that we've had, and I think that um, letting things uh, letting things develop is is particularly unscientific. There's no doubt well, whatsoever
0: guess what? If you're a botanist or a zoologist, you let things develop because you go and you dig around and you look at plants species, you look at animals and you see what they do and you note it down. Darwin would not have gotten a research grant yes. to get on the beagle. He would not have gotten the funding. He didn't know what he was allegedly going to find no. out. Yeah. You know, some kinds of science are actually going to places, being present and observing what happens. Yeah, no doubt what's it? Without having a clue what's going to happen, mm. that's a scientific method. Yeah, along with yeah. other scientific methods. That's one of them. If I am here. I don't know what I'm seeing. I'm trying to nut it out. Yeah, I'm trying true. to figure out taxonomies and theories. Star Trek uh, research. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> going, going where no man's been before. Here us. we go. So yeah. The worst example of cultural studies. I'm putting my name to it, but it's okay. <laughs> so. To finish off, Chris, tell us what you're working on right now at a research level. Uh, is there more Australian asbestos network?
1: A little bit. It's, it's that's historical. I'm I'm going to write a chapter for uh, for a book looking at the history of reporting, media reporting of uh, of asbestos. And there've been some champions. There've been some some great figures who fought against their uh, their own management or have um, sort of been. At risk in some cases to reports. So that's there are there are there are those, but I, I had I had one this morning that's been irritating me. Or it's been bothering me a little bit, and that is at the end of last year at, at New Year time. You get these um, requests from media. Saying what, what's the uh, what's the what's 2014 going to reveal? You know what, what's going to be the big issues of 2014? You guess, you make something up, mm. sort of. I was uh, luck, I said, um, uh, look out for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's because it's going to come under threat from the government, um, and and it already has. So it's for the, the uh, for, 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 for the dear listeners of uh, uh, and viewers of the ABC to um, to defend its. To, de- to defend the institution. But another academic in the US said, this is the year of the drone. I thought, I don't think so. I'm not so sure about mm. that. What do I mean by that? And as it's turned out, week by week, I've, it's, it's, uh, it's been on my mind. And um, just today I read in the newspaper that uh, during a triathlon that a drone uh, which, with a camera on it, an unmanned uh, vehicle... Um, Crashed into one of the participants, one of the one, one of the cyclists who was probably doing about fifty kilometres an hour, and um, caused a caused an accident. Um, but one of my colleagues is is interested in the drone phenomenon. I joked about it for the last, you know, for the first few weeks of 2014. But I now think actually there are lots of aspects of drone technology, the ethics of the use of drones, uh, the quality of the Access or the sort of quality of the vision and the new access that drones could provide uh, for uh, for journalism—that it's one can't ignore it. And I think at some stage it's going to be far better regulated. I can't imagine that we'll be allowed to play with a new machine um, for very long, long without regulation. The
0: Bureau of Investigative Journalism does a weekly podcast on drones. Uh, yes. But particularly militarized uses by the United States. Yes,
1: yeah. Which yeah. needs a
0: lot more coverage. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so you think there might be a Murdoch Journalism School drone piloted by you from Central HQ? Is this no, your thing? Oh, I'm going
1: to be. Oh, no, Toby, I'm the editor. Oh, sorry. Someone else last Some piloting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, once a dean, once a union official, never really changing. Chris my thank you very much. Thank it was you, great Toby. to chat
1: to you. Pleasure.